Listening to your favorite CGSW programming just got even easier with the brand new CGSW radio app. With over 110 music shows, podcasts, and multicultural programs, you can listen to the shows you love and find new ones that fit with genres or categories you're interested in. Look up CJSW on the App Store or Google Play now and download it onto your phone to bring CJSW with you wherever you go. Good evening. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. We feature inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and bonus literary segments. Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective based off of the University of Calgary campus. If you'd like to get involved with our show, send us a line at cgsw.writers at gmail.com. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Alicia Pierre-Mohammed, followed by an interview with Patrick Horner. After that, we have fiction by Rebecca Bernard and two bonus segments topping off this episode. Without further ado, let's get started. Coming up first, we have my interview. Stay tuned! Good evening, everybody. You are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Tonight, we have me, Maddie Robinson, interviewing Alicia Pierre-Mohammed on her new book, Another Way to Split Water. How are you doing, Alicia? I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so I was excited to get a, a, a copy of your work because I love interviewing poets. And I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about some of the language in this work. Um, so I understand that this collection has a lot of like mixed themes around kind of like the body, around spirituality and God, and also around the idea of splitting water. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's correct. The The themes of the body are really present. I write a lot about women's bodies and womanhood and how we exist in the natural world. I think that's really important to my work. And often I use metaphors of the natural world or nature to to sort of explore my own questions or thoughts about womanhood and about faith and spirituality and, and sort of how I feel about my relationship to those things as well. Water was one of those motifs that just kept coming back in my poems. Like I would set out to write a poem and water would emerge um, in the work. And so it just felt like a really important strand. I guess the most important strand because it's in the title um, that came in the work eventually. Yeah, I wanted to ask about water as the prevailing metaphor because it's interesting because our bodies are mostly water and this planet is mostly water. Water splits land and it like separates people as well. Um, So it's kind of an interesting metaphor because depending on how you see it, it can either heal people or it can kind of like pull people away. Water is a natural force that's also very strong. So it's like not something that's necessarily benign, even though it, it appears benign. Um, So I wanted to ask you, so the, the quote in the beginning, forgive me, I cannot teach you to say my name. I am from anywhere halved by water did you want to talk about why you chose one of like you had two quotes in the beginning but why you chose that quote in particular so that quote is from a poem by Safia Elhalo and I was immediately drawn to her poetry like the moment I encountered it and that quote exists at the beginning of the collection because I think it sort of 
underlies everything that comes afterward. And I was I was interested in the idea of, well, if you are from anywhere that's halved by water, then you are from multiple places. You are from multiplicity and not just from a single place. And you belong kind of everywhere in that sense. But also there is a sense, I mean, having has that sort of troubling sense behind it too. Like there's sort of a tension in somewhere that's halved. So I liked the idea that it was multiplicity, but there was like sort of tension involved in that and kind of complication involved in being from multiple places. And I felt like that, I don't know, it felt like really crucial to the sort of questions I was thinking about in my work. So it, yeah, as soon as I read that poem that that quote is from, it seemed to sort of contextualize a lot of the thoughts that I was working through myself. Yeah, and I think I think you kind of touched on the point that water is a place, but water is also a way to travel or almost like an emotion or a way of being. There's a couple lines, like you use the word like river as a verb, and you kind of you get very creative with the idea of water not just being like, you know, like glass of water, for example. Like you're very creative with it. For example, you mentioned in the poem Hinge that it's almost like you can walk through a clear blue door of glacial water. And I walked right through your reflection. So water is also a mirror, right? <laughs> Water isn't just something that we have in us. It also, if we're very, if it's very still and quiet, we also see ourselves in it, which is really fascinating. I know a lot of historians talk about before there are official mirrors, like you'd have to look into like a pool of water to see yourself, right? So I wanted to press further a little bit about questions about locale and location. So one of the poems, um, Nights slash Flatline, talks about the needle of a broken compass flickering back and forth. And I guess it's kind of interesting because I know water also has to do a little bit with, you know, people who are navigating via sea and like thinking about direction and things like this. But a lot of writers have mentioned, I think Aretha Van Herc also mentions this, that compasses aren't entirely accurate because there's no true north. Like the North Pole is just kind of nowhere, right? Like it's just kind of like once you get there, you're just kind of there. Um, so did you want to talk about direction at all and kind of like land and place and anything like that as well? Oh, I, I love everything you just said. That's so interesting. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's true. Um, I think the way that it was used in this poem and that really resonates with the things that you mentioned about there being no like true north or compass is always like being a little broken or not or not directing completely and like satisfactorily, I guess. I think in this poem, the compass is working and as a metaphor to sort of suggest that that exact feeling of never feeling truly in one place and belonging there or finding a home there or, you know, feeling like you've ended up in the right spot. Like you always are pulled or at least the speaker in that poem or in my, like my life, I feel like pulled in multiple directions. And so even if a compass isn't broken wherever it leads me isn't the only place that I want to go I suppose yeah. and um, and I just think in terms of that resonating with with like land and place I think all of these poems are really deeply rooted in place and sometimes that place is a really literal place like Hinge the poem you mentioned earlier talks about Mount Yomneska like that's a very literal place that I've mm-hmm. been but then that one was so other. recognizable like I'm in the mountains yeah. right now so I'm like oh this is so interesting yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I I think like a lot of the poems are odes to places that way. And like the things that I felt while in those places and, and I guess reflecting on them in poetry is a way to sort of understand my feelings about my place in those different spaces as well. And I guess it's interesting too, because I was thinking about this while you're talking, like when it comes to like a broken compass or even just any compass, like compasses always point you in a direction, but they never point you to where you you already are. Like if you, you know, like they never, they never point you towards your bedroom or like towards the ground or anything (laughs) like that, like that you're, you're standing on. It's almost like you have to keep moving, right? 
So my next question was actually going to be about your process in writing poetry. So I've always been more of a prose writer and I've like dabbled in different kinds of prose, like journalism and kind of more like fiction writing and creative nonfiction. Um, But I've never been much of a poet. And you have some like really interesting imagery in this in this collection like I've been like underlining certain things because I found them so fascinating and I wonder kind of like where you come up with the the images so do you do you come up with like a couple images first and then it starts to create almost like a poem or do you have an idea kind of loosely for a poem and it turns into it like fractures into images like what's your what's your process Mm -hmm. there I think it's a little bit of both but I think it's probably mainly the first one that first option where you talked about images sort of coming together first I Often when I'm reading my poetry out loud to audiences who, when you read it out loud and you perform it, you don't have as much time for, or the audience doesn't have as much time to sort of linger in the poem. And so I often say that the story of my poem or the narrative of my poem, that those things exist in the images. So if you can grasp onto a couple of images and follow those stories, you're getting, you know, a lot of what I intended in the poem. So I think the images are really crucial. I write really imagistic poems. I enjoy creating images and and really sensorial descriptions. Um, that's what it really draws me to poetry. So I think that's what kind of comes through in my poems. So those are definitely, I think, the anchors. Um, and so when I approach the page, it's usually with the sort of, I guess, atten- intention to, to create something sensorial and to depict something. And then often I write into sort of the, the the larger ideas um, or the images direct me to sort of what I want to say um, more fully in the poems. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this one, this one um, <clears throat> image. I lean over the edge of the pond, see petals of my face glinting in the water. And I thought, oh, that's so clever because it is true. When the water breaks a reflection, it doesn't look like almost little petals on the water of a reflection or of light or something like that. So it's kind of like a double nature metaphor, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so I also wanted to ask, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were on the list for the CBC Short Story Prize, correct? Poetry Prize, correct? Yeah, so I yes. I won the Poetry Prize, but in 2019, so a few years ago. How did you find that? Did that experience kind of like kickstart your career? Or was that just like the tip of the iceberg for you? Was that like a push that you needed in the right direction? I think it maybe it was all of those things. Like, I think as a a poet, um, sharing your work is important. I I enjoy connecting with the community of writers and readers. And I feel like winning the CBC Poetry Prize introduced me to a a whole, like a wider community. Um, And I got to share my work with a lot more people. And I got messages from people um, just saying how much they resonated with my poems or, you know, how much like some of the lines or things I mentioned within those poems meant to them. And that was that was amazing. Like that feeling of sort of being part of this writing community that um, exists out there, like the readers that exist out there was, was really great. And then I guess there was the sort of idea of like having that validation also gave me the confidence to take more risks in my work and to sort of experiment further because there was sort of this, uh, I guess, foundation for me to explore my voice a bit more and um, have the confidence to do that. Yeah, that must have been exciting though, hey? <laughs> Being featured so on the cool. news. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was a huge surprise because I had been I submitted like a few times before I ever got long listed even. And so mm-hmm. it was like a huge surprise and it was amazing. It felt really good. That's awesome. And it must be like super validating too, right? Because you can be like, look at what I did. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the long list is always so strong as well. I know. Well, it's funny. I always find that I sometimes 
I find when it comes to like the shortlist and stuff like that, like I'll look and like my favorite isn't always their favorite I find, which is interesting, but they're all really good always. And they're all very unique, yeah. which is like the fun of it. You're like, oh, that one's completely different from, I think this year there is one about um, dementia that I thought was really, really smart. It was just like so brilliant in how it utilized language. But anyway, so I wanted to ask you too. So when it comes to like teaching poetry or teaching creative writing I thought I'd ask you a couple questions because I don't I don't write poetry but I appreciate it but I've thought about writing more poetry like I published like a couple like little poems but it's never been kind of my wheelhouse um what kind of advice do you have for students for like if you're if you're stuck and you're writing poems but they don't seem to be working or like do you do you have any ways of unstucking yourself if you're ever not sure what to write about or how to write about it or how to edit it even maybe I have been getting stuck a lot more lately and I think it has to do with a lot of things trying to grab my attention or a, like a sense of not having enough time. And I think some of those barriers make it really difficult to sit down and write because I think poetry often needs space. Like you often need to set aside some time and have that space to to think about the page and how you want to approach it. But when I feel stuck, what I often have to do, and this is not new advice, I feel like everybody says this, but when I if I pick up a couple books and I start reading, I feel like that really... I don't know, releases something in me or it makes me think about my, I think, think about ideas in any way or it inspires me or it excites me. And one thing, this, this is not for everybody, but one thing I really love to do also is I love to go like for walks. And I feel like if I am reading and I'm going out for walks and having that time to think, um, a lot of my ideas do, like you said, like they come unstuck and I and I feel ready to, to put things down. One revising technique that I really love doing is I love replacing nouns in my work. Um, or it doesn't have to be nouns, but I love like if I if I take a draft and um, I sort of feel like a word isn't working or even if maybe it, it is interesting, but maybe a bit familiar or cliche or easy, I just kind of change it for a new word. So like one thing for my students, I give the example of changing like the word time to like azalea or something. And then mm -hmm. suddenly like you kind of create a new metaphor. So this idea of, you know, replacing words in a poem just to see how far you can stretch the language is quite interesting because it, I don't, <laughs> I find it really difficult to delete a whole line, but to like replace a word or revise a word and sort of see what happens. I think that can be really, really fun. It can be a really fun exercise if anything. Or just like leave it blank space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, uh, yeah, yeah. I love spaces too. Yeah. Well, you do, you do play around with deletion. Like there's this one poem where you have on the left-hand side, you have lines and on the right-hand side, you have lines, but they're crossed out, which I thought was kind of interesting. There's kind of like an interesting parallelism there. And I almost wondered if these were like lines that you had thought about writing down and then you would cross them out <laughs> or if you decided to keep them in, or if that's, or if that's, if you're just playing with us and you actually wanted both lines in the poem to begin with, I wasn't sure. I don't know if you want like answers or. I mean, I feel like I, I, I don't, don't know, know if I, I need answers. answers. I don't know if I need yeah. answers because I'm kind of curious about it. I think... But I will ask. Okay, so I guess that does lead into my next question. Now, I notice you you write about like spirit, like spirituality and like God quite a few times and things like this. Now, I was always told not to write about religion or anything like too spiritual because it's too up in the air it's too floaty like if you use like something because I think people see it as quote-unquote too conceptual like love or dreams mm -hmm. or god or prayer or things like this they say not to write about it but I noticed that you write about it quite a bit so I guess my next question as a follow-up would be like how how particularly do you write about that without making it cliche is it the really strong images like is it kind of taking that noun and then turning it into something else and saying actually it's not prayer actually it's opening my refrigerator and seeing a bunch of cracked eggs or whatever. I don't know. Is that kind of how you fix that problem? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> 
what I would say is it's it, it it appeared to me like it came became evident to me that religion and spirituality was something that I wanted to talk about and I wanted to write about. And even though it is like one of those kind of abstract maybe concepts or not everybody relates to them the same way, it was just so important for me to put that on the page because a lot of the book even if it's fictionalized or reimagined, a lot of the book is about my experiences and sort of my subjectivity and my context and my my upbringing and living as as um growing up as like a Muslim um, during sort of I guess around the time of 9/11 and how that impacted my identity and who I was and how I felt about who I was. All of those things were really important for me to address. I think in my art and I think for me poetry and art kind of is a way to express the complicated feelings or the questions I have about um, the world and to understand the world better. And my worldview is is so informed by that upbringing and that experience. And so it was almost impossible to not put those things on the page. And so I think, I think in finding a way to, to talk about them or write about them in a, in, I guess, not a cliche way was just to be, to be specific and, as authentic to the experience as possible. Poems can be many things at once. So it was also interweaving a bunch of ideas into one poem. So although it's about spirituality, it's also about what the forest looks like at night, or it's also about traveling in a car and seeing cattle beside you. And it's also about, I don't know, the first time you uh, went into the sea. So all of those things kind of exist at once as well. That's a good answer. Yeah. I thought I'd ask only because I find like, I know that's kind of like something that they warn people to like tiptoe around is anything too quote unquote conceptual. Right. So that's why I kind of thought I would ask. It's a great question. Thank you for coming on. It was lovely to chat with you about your poetry. Um, I love interviewing poets in particular only because I don't write a lot of poetry myself. So I'm always really curious about what's kind of like going through their brains there. We Any of the listeners for uh, CGSW 90.9 FM can buy another way to split water at a local bookstore near you. Um, were there any last comments that you wanted listeners to know about or any any last wishes you wanted them to hear? I don't know, just to definitely go into your like, local bookshop and look at the poetry section and pick up something new because a lot of amazing stuff is being published in Alberta, actually, like so many great books. You know year. what? Yeah, we have so much great local stuff. That's what I like about even like the Canadian literary scene, I think is so cool. And I feel like it's slightly less commercialized than the American literature scene, which I think makes it even cooler. And yeah, check out, like, I just like to pick up a book of poetry and flip to a random page because I find poetry, it's kind of like, it's almost like listening to a record or something. Like, you might not like every song, but there's always one that you really like. It's like that kind of thing. Like, there's one poem that you're like, ah, this is the poem that I really like. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's there's always something you can connect with, I think. Exactly. Or like one image that sticks with you or something like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was lovely to chat with you today. And Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. You are tuned in to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. That was my interview with Alicia Pierre Muhammad on her work of poetry, Another Way to Split Water. If you missed this interview in its entirety, you can always tune in on cgsw.com slash writers dash block to listen again. We have a reading from her collection coming up next after this short break. Keep that dialogue to 90.9 FM and stay tuned. CJSW. Know 
Adverbs allowed. My body is a forest. There is a face in the trees. I lost a language to the gap-toothed birch. Even the pine has learned how to swoon when the wind deposits a secret. A country is born knowing what it means to waver. A lost country is made by its daughters, and shame begins as a seed that blossoms perennially throughout generations. Clove keeps the chow bitter. For every dark cross, I apologize because I could not read the recipe written in my grandmother's neat script. I added cinnamon, crushed anise, mountain slope, and too many quartered Canadas. Once, I watched a mule deer unfold her limbs and vanish among the haloed trees, fog uncoiling at her heels, a ghost inviting her into its loosened borders. In the blood of every migrant, there is a map pointing home. This body is an ode to the scattered landscapes that have marbled my neck with dark hairs and sharp, coarse longings. Ask me how I remember her. Not a face, but a movement. Legs dotting into a slip of boreal green. A swatch of color in the shape of a lost country. A daughter which is to say, an inherited vanishing through the slit of a dream. That was a reading from Alicia Pierre Muhammad from her collection, Another Way to Split Water. That poem was called My Body is a Forest. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. And if you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cjsw.com. Coming up next, we have an interview with Patrick Horner on his new work, Refugia. Stay tuned. My name is Jenny Kwong for Redis Walk on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today I'm speaking with Patrick Horner, uh, author of a new poetry book called Refugia, which was recently uh, released by the University of Calgary Press. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks, Jenny. Nice to be on Writer's Block. So I think uh, you've been on uh CJSW before in the past. So what was that about? My brother, Doug, uh, used to have a show called the OK Ship Lights, Edward Upward. And we did a, uh, a radio play called Waste Dump, um, which we aired on his show. And so it's been a few years. So how have you been doing uh, this uh, lately? Yeah, very good. Very good. So the book uh, you wrote, it's a poetry book, and uh, it is about a trip you took to uh, Hadagwai in Vancouver Island. So when did you take the trip? I guess the trip actually was quite a while ago now, probably about 20 years ago. 
And what was it about that you wanted to capture about that trip? Well, when we went there,、um, the place was very captivating. I went with、uh, a friend, and I went on a sea kayaking trip,、um, kind of in early May,、um, which is very early season then. So we went on a, a two-week trip, and while we were out, we didn't see any other people, kind of for that. Entire duration,、uh, and it, the part of the islands that we were in, yeah, there, there just weren't any other people at the time. So it was a very kind of、uh, interesting experience where we got to experience the place on our own. You know, kind of feeling alone, kind of、uh, alone in the wilderness. And it was obviously it's a spectacularly beautiful place with a lot of rich natural history and kind of history in general. And it. Kind of one of those、uh, moments that really kind of scorches itself, kind of into the back of your brain. Just it was, yeah, it, it made a big impression. And have you been back since? I haven't been.、Uh, I've kind of intended to, and I would very much like to go back,、uh, but haven't haven't had the opportunity. So, how much of the visit did you write down at the time? Well, I kept the journal when we were on the trip. You know, which was just kind of、uh, kind of documenting what we were doing every day and the progress we were making, kayaking and kind of where we were staying and then the things we were seeing. I really didn't have the book in mind when we were on the trip, so I wasn't particularly starting the story or, or writing the story. But when I got back and when I did start writing the book, I did have the journal, which was an account from when we were there, and that was something I was kind of able to draw on, just、uh, you know, with. Some of the scenes and kind of some of the emotions and images and the general impression of the place, I had kind of at least captured a little bit again journaling while we were there. And so, what ended up in the book? Well, the book ends up being—it's kind of more of a story about two other characters. There was, I guess, kind of something else that happened on the trip that kind of sparked the story. When we were finished. The kayaking trip. We were, we spent a couple days、um, back in Queen Charlotte City, and there was a an old used bookstore there that I was browsing around in, and I, I happened to kind of come across. It was a a PhD thesis that had been published, or a research paper about the evolution of mammals on the Queen Charlotte Islands or or Haida Gwaii, and it it was a. a Kind of a paper, or there had been a research trip back in the '60s about these evolutionary biologists that had gone to the islands, and I kind of didn't know why, but I kind of impulsively purchased this paper and didn't even kind of look at it right away. But I think it was a few years later, when I was kind of thinking about the trip, I went back to this paper and kind of started reading it. I found the story kind of—I started imagining sort of the story behind how the this. Research paper had been put together、uh, was intriguing, kind of in combination with the, the place, and so I kind of yeah started you know working on the story, but both sort of you know based on the how I imagined. I mean, very kind of fictionally how maybe this research paper, what the experience would have been like, kind of going there and, and working on this,、uh, kind of compared with the experience of of us going to the islands as well. And what was the difference between thinking and analyzing nature versus being part of nature, which the research paper suggests? Well, I, I think it's—I、uh, was kind of playing with two different approaches. Maybe you know, one looking at nature through、uh, a scientific lens, and one you know, looking at it through 
more of a poetic lens. And then in, in the book, I, I take those two different approaches and kind of play them off each other and, and mix them up and combine them and intertwine them. And that was something I, I kind of had a lot of fun with when I was writing the book. What attracted you to the island in the first place when you uh, went there? I think it was um, kind of spectacular, kind of natural beauty. I, I think it, it's remoteness. Um, it really, you know, you when you're there, you you really do kind of get the feeling like you're at the edge of the world. And then again, I think kind of being there at a time when, you know, just at least at the part where we were, there really weren't any other people around. Sort of again, being alone, kind of at the edge of the world, maybe where you're kind of leaving kind of aspects of your sort of human self behind. So, how long did it take you to write the book? Quite a while. I think I I wrote the book. Over a period of about eight years, and it, it kind of came together very slowly, uh, especially kind of the story that weaved through it. You know, it, it kind of started off as kind of images and short pieces of text, kind of started to you know play again with that story of the the research and the, the scientific story that was being told. I guess it, yeah, it, it came together slowly, um, kind of bit by bit. You know, kind of finally progressing into into what it is now, but it it was yeah, it was written over quite a quite a long period of time. And there were quite a few different drafts, and I think the the finished product is is quite a bit different than kind of some of the stuff I started with. So kind of every time I would come back to it and rework it, it was always a little bit surprising. Uh, are you still working on any of the poems now that you have like a finished book that's out out in the world? Not these particular ones, no. I think now that these ones are finished and they're kind of bound in a finished book, I'm kind of leaving them on their own. You know, they they seem to have a, a life of their own now, and I'm leaving them to it. And yeah, now working on new things. And so, uh, what new things are you thinking of uh, working on? Well, now um, living here in Denmark, I, I guess similar to how Refugia was put together, I, I do find I'm. Kind of influenced by the places that I am, um, I've started working on a new piece that is kind of exploring more of a an urban landscape and maybe the the intersection of you know kind of wilderness within the city. Also, you know, looking at uh, there's a Copenhagen painter uh, Peter Round. I've been you know, kind of working at kind of doing responses to some of his paintings and. Using that as kind of inspiration for characters and kind of a sense of story, and then yeah, weaving that into again yeah, kind of a an urban wilderness kind of setting that's inspired by Copenhagen. And what are you reading now? Are there any Danish authors you're interested in um, learning more about? Yeah, there's there's quite a few um, right now. I've been actually uh, reading Olga Ram. Um, she's a very interesting Danish poet. And fiction writer, so that that's been very interesting. Also, still, yeah, kind of reading a lot of uh, Canadian writers at the moment as well. Anything else you'd like to add to what we've already talked about? I really, I kind of appreciate the opportunity to get a chance to talk about the book. I appreciate getting to do the interview. Thank you very much, Patrick, for your time today. You too, Jenny. Thank you very much. It's good, good chatting with you. Good chatting. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writers Block. That was my interview with Patrick Horner, talking to him about his new poetry book, Refugia. Currently, he lives in Copenhagen, Denmark, 
where he is an engineer working on new water treatment technology. Refugia was released by the University of Calgary Press in October 2022. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. That was Jenny Kwong interviewing Patrick Horner on Refugia. Coming up next, we have short fiction by Rebecca Bernard. This is a story called Lottery. Stay tuned. CJSW, no adverbs allowed. Lottery. My husband's best friend hung himself in his bedroom closet. Sometimes my husband dreams about his friend and he tells me about the dreams. In the latest one, they're at 7-Eleven buying scratch-off tickets. The dead friend wins big, a $10,000 prize. They whoop in the aisles. The friend says to my husband, I think I'll reinvest. He goes to the counter, asks the cashier for $10,000 in scratch-off tickets. The crossword, cash five, pick three, thousands of waxy pieces of paper. This will take days, my husband says to his dead friend. We'll never have enough time. His friend produces a penny, shiny, newly minted. They don't make new pennies anymore, do they? I ask. It's a dream, says my husband. The whole thing, everything, a dream. Outside, the world white and dry. This, the dead of winter. I listen to my husband talk. It is something I've been told I am not good at doing. I'm not finished, my husband says to me. We went into the parking lot, and on the trunks of other people's cars, we scratched off the tickets. And this one was a winner, and this one was a winner, and this one... $750,000 he won. It was incredible. My husband wipes his eyes. He isn't crying. It's allergies. In the dream, I shouted over and over, he says. You won! You won! Look how much you won! This was heaven, I venture... You're not listening, he says to me. My friend won. He was a winner. We both were. Right, I say. You won a lot of money. Yes, says my husband. He won so much money. It was glorious, I mean. I'd never seen someone so lucky. A boat. Two boats. He could buy it all. Sounds like a great dream, I say. It was, he says. So what's the matter, I ask my husband. I didn't finish, he says. In the dream, I asked him what he wanted to do, and he said we should be practical. We should go to the bank and deposit the money. I said, okay, even though it's not what I would have done. It was his money, I say. I know that, says my husband. But it didn't work, he says. We got to the bank and waited in the long line, and when it was finally our turn, the teller told my friend we'd have to pay taxes, and the taxes were greater than the total. The teller took everything, and he wouldn't give it back. I screamed at the teller. I told him it was theft, the unfairness of it, the nonsense. My friend had to calm me down. I was the one screaming. My friend said to me, What did it matter? What did anything matter? I could do it again. Win it all again. My husband becomes quiet. His lips pursed. His hands by his sides hang like dead weights. 
I think about what to say. My dreams have beat me up before. I know that I should understand. But you couldn't do it all again. That kind of luck. My husband turns to look at me slowly, a planet forgotten its axis. He nods his head. The world outside, white as bone. What would you have done with the money? I ask. He hesitates, understands that I have paid attention. I nod, proud, though I shouldn't be. What I would give to have listened better, he says. You have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month and features inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and fun literary segments. That was the short story Lottery by Rebecca Bernard. Rebecca Bernard's debut collection of stories won the 2021 Nonfiction Prize held by The Journal. She recently started as an assistant professor of creative writing at Angelo State University and serves as fiction editor for The Boiler. Coming up next, we have a bonus segment from my interview earlier this year with Micah Jacobson. As many of you know, I recently interviewed Micah on her essay collection Modern Fables, but unfortunately our talk was cut very short due to time constraints. So for this bonus section, we are featuring the rest of the chat for those who were wondering about the essay. Coming up next is my conversation with Micah on her essay, David Silver. Stay tuned! Yeah, so so veering away from that, I want to touch on a couple other essays. So because it's relevant, I thought I'd touch about this one called David Silver. So I, you know, I didn't write notes for this one, but this one's kind of about basically... Um, you talk about kind of a fan crush you had, and then you talk about how, as like as a, as a young person, you and your friends were interested in like seances and mysticism and the occult. But the one question you always ask, you could ask like, "How's the world going to end?" But instead, you're like, "Who am I going to marry?" Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Which I th- found very interesting. That's a very girly kind of not girly, but kind of a very. It's almost like this is something that ma- many women will relate to. You go to the sleepover and you're like, "Let's let's predict the future," which is I don't think I don't think that happens in a lot of other cases. Um, and this one also has to do a lot with love and choice and fate and is it not fate? And you mentioned, I think you, I, I think it's this one you mentioned, you run into someone and you get the feeling that you're going to marry them. And I've had that too. And you're like, what, where does this come from? But then it's kind of, you're kind of begging the question like, okay, is that just from a different reality or a different universe? And that's, you know, do you get to still choose? Like what, what are kind of your, your thoughts on this, I guess? Cause you mentioned, you know, that you see the name like David everywhere and it's spelled on the Ouija board and all, all, all these things. But then you also mentioned it's the second most popular name in North America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like, is this just, so do you want to, do you want to yeah. expand on that? <laughs> well, when I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about this essay for quite a while. I wrote various iterations of it over time, but I would always come back to, I would think a lot about what, if there was like a period of time when I was probably 13 where, yeah, my friends and I would have sleepovers and we would use the Ouija board all the time. And we would always ask this, we'd always ask, who are you going to marry? And, you know, we were pretty dedicated to the advice of the spirit world. Like, we really believed in it, (laughs) or at least I did. I mean, I don't know, maybe not everyone did, but I certainly, you know, I I believed that we had access to some kind of, I don't know, otherworldly power. And when I thought about it, you know, as an adult, I, I guess it was this moment that reinforced for me how much even very young girls are taught to be preoccupied with 
hetero versions of romance that like you know you know the thing that we should be most concerned about is like who we're gonna marry even when we're really young and even if especially you know if we feel like we have access to this otherworldly power yeah like this is the question this is all this is what we want to know that you know that's one thing when you're a young girl and if i do think that that kind of social conditioning is insidious but it was also a tension that i had as i as i was navigating my own life and also writing these essays because as i got older and as a feminist and as a a person who appreciates my autonomy and my independence i still often felt at odds with this intense yearning i had for romantic connection and of course i think that's very very human but often yeah like I, i felt like it was difficult to unravel what my own desires and wants were for my own life and how I wanted to direct my own life versus what I had been taught to want or taught to imagine that my life should be. Yeah, you you write, whatever you believe about ghosts and the living, alternate realms and spiritual phenomenon, we girls believed in everything. What saddens me now, shames me even, is what we did with this power. Quite frankly, we squandered it. But then you end the paragraph with, though I likely would do the same (laughs) day. And you know, I do know um, people who are psychic or people do readings, things like this. And I, I once I once asked him when I was quite young, I said, oh, like, I, you know, I want to ask about a guy I like. And he kind of chuckled. And I said, I don't know if people do this. And he looked at me. He goes, everybody asks about love. That's the one thing everybody wants to know is the soulmate thing or the love thing. You know what I mean? Like, I almost think it, it doesn't really go away. <laughs> and maybe that's what people like about it is no matter it, it makes you feel like a teenage girl again, I guess, or a teenage boy or whatever. Yeah. Or you know, and I even noticed, like, I really like astrology and horoscopes, like so often focus on like romance, on meeting someone new. But I also think that's like a really wonderful part of being a human and being alive you know like falling in love feels so good and I do think most of us really do yearn for connection but I think I suppose one of the things that I was exploring throughout the collection in, in that essay is that you know there are many ways to have romance there are many ways to have love there are many ways to be in relation to one another also like being alone is can be enormously joyful and fulfilling and I think this focus on that life has to be one way or it isn't fulfilling that if you are unpartnered if you are are, and I, I think was something that really surprised me as I got older was just how much focus there was, even particularly on marriage, you know, like, even though I, I would have assumed in my 20s that that was something of an outdated idea, like, it's like, oh, apparently, barely not. And so, yeah, I think just wanting the way that, I don't know, the options for what is imagined to be a good life to be a bit more open and a bit freer and acknowledging that, you know, there, there are many ways to I don't know, have a joyful, happy, fulfilling life that don't necessarily mean that it ends in in a, in a particular kind of marriage. I mean, I think this is something that is difficult also about nonfiction writing in particular, is that, you know, you, it, it requires a, a level of honesty and vulnerability. Because if you don't really say any, like, if you don't really say anything, or if everything is, if everyone is, you know, wonderful, and every interaction is positive it's just you know i don't know that it offers a lot to the reader correct and they say with of course uh, any romantic comedy or romantic story it's like there has to be something that pushes two people away right right otherwise it's too easy i mean i I guess this also kind of reflects on our daily lives though because it has to rub off on us like i've actually personally found when i've had relationships that are quite happy i hate to say it but if it's too happy i get kind of bored like I don't know how to how else to put that but some I think it's terrible but I do have this almost kind of I kind of lean towards the challenging person or the person that's a challenge or the person that makes me want to throw my laptop out the window because I'm pissed off at them there's this part of me that almost prefers it and like I guess swinging back to this essay 
David Silver where you talk about this, um, I believe it's a movie star or a TV show that you liked. I had a very similar thing. I, my grandmother introduced me to um, a TV show called Moonlighting. It was a very old 80s TV show and it's, it's very well known because it was kind of one of those first really snappy TV dramas where there's a guy and a girl cop and they solve mysteries together, but there's this, this tension between them. And I, you know, his name's, I think, David Addison and Madison something. And my name is Madison. So, of course, I was obsessed with this. Um, But it it did actually rub off on me because they have this thing called the moonlighting effect where as soon as the couples get together, it gets boring. And this happens in every TV show. The ratings go down. And there's there's people that argue about this moonlighting effect. And is it it a real thing in real life? Does it actually happen when suddenly, you know, the conflict's over, the story's over, happy ending. Now we don't want to watch. We don't want to watch these two solve mysteries because they've got together. So... Sorry, this is me jumping around. No, it's just no. I've, I've noticed the connection through kind of these modern fables because it is like a fable or a fairy tale. You know, it always ends with that happily ever after. But where's the interest in that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. If you missed this episode live, you can check it out on cjsw.com. That was a short feature from an earlier interview with Micah Jacobson about her essay collection, Modern Fables. This episode of Writer's Block also featured interviews with Alicia Pierre-Mohammed and Patrick Horner, as well as a fiction reading by Rebecca Bernard. For our last segment of this episode of Writer's Block, we will be featuring three incredibly famous inspirational poems. If you can guess these poems after listening, email us at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. Again, that is cjsw.writers, writers with an S, at gmail.com, and we will reveal the answers next episode. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and have a happy holiday season. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just because I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. (laughs) Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides just like hope springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my sassiness upset you? <laughs> Don't take it so hard just because I laugh as if I have gold mines digging in my own backyard. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, I rise. Does my sexiness offend you? Oh. (laughs) Does it come as a surprise that I dance? As if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. A black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling and bearing in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. 
into a daybreak miraculously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave. And so, There I go. <laughs> Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learn too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? 